I'm willing to take any type polygraph test because I know I'm telling the truth. I never raped or murdered anyone, period. One thing that really stuck out in my mind is that his use of duct tape, literally, he hung his curtains with duct tape. He was very mobile, so we just knew that we were going to have a hard time in locating this individual. No one had seen him. No one had also reported him missing. They just assumed he was out of the area. This is during July. There's a lot of smoke was coming out of the chimney. Quite obviously, somebody was burning something. Cement blocks drew our attention because they appeared to be quite similar with the markings and type that we found on the body of Rachel Timmerman. There was a pickup truck backed up to the garage door here and they were loading stuff from within the household into the pickup truck. That was a very much a concern for us, that the family was assisting Marvin and just to dispose of evidence. Those blocks that were found on Rachel Timmerman's body were a match to the blocks found at Marvin Gabriel's house. It was like a fingerprint. It was described that he had gone to great extent to collect a number of pre-pubescent female pictures of girls wearing underwear and scanty clothes. It wasn't commercial porn pornography, but it showed his preference for children. PACER, otherwise known as Public Access to Court Electronic Records, is a fantastic resource for court documents because often, they include items to support the claims they wish to argue in their briefs. I pulled all the documents related to the Rachel Timmerman case, and included with those, I got everything from copies of the handwritten letters that Rachel was forced to write while she was being held by Gabriel, to his own rambling letters and excerpts from FBI statements, along with a thick file produced by the defense regarding the mental health of Marvin and his entire family, as well as a long family history. There were also letters from two medical examiners who had different takes on whether Rachel had been conscious and alive prior to being dumped into Oxford Lake. In all the documentation I just mentioned, I learned details about the case that did not generally get covered in the local media in detail, so there were many things that I hadn't really heard much about. The first seemingly important detail that I learned came from an FBI report the statement of a woman who had been housed with Rachel Timmerman in the Nuevo County Jail during some of the time that she was beginning to serve her own 32-year sentence for marijuana trafficking. She spoke to the FBI two months after Rachel's body was found. In January of 1997, Rachel was doing that stint in the Nuevo County Jail for the probation violation revolving around pot, specifically for selling one-eighth of an ounce of pot to an undercover officer. When she went into jail, this woman was her cellmate. She said Rachel spoke to her in detail on many topics, some of which revolved around drugs. The woman alleged that Rachel had told her that she'd picked up pot on two different occasions from the same Swampy Lake area where she was later found dead. Rachel told her about going with a family member and another woman to pick up about two pounds of pot from a relative of Marvin Gabriel. According to this woman, Rachel was selling it for him and the amounts discussed suggest that she was moving a fair amount per week. According to this woman, Rachel also shared with her details about Marvin Gabriel raping her, including who was present that night and details about Marvin offering her a ride home, 
including the fact that she'd mentioned the car had been a convertible. She said that Rachel told her that on the way home, Marvin passed her house and then stopped and told the other guys to get the fuck out of the car, which they did. This woman described the area where Rachel told her he had driven her, down the two-track road, and once out of the vehicle how he had bit her and banged her head on the ground. She said he had repeatedly raped her, while telling her that he wasn't sure if he was going to let her go or kill her that night. She even knew about Rachel getting the hammer from the bathroom when she got home and threatening Marvin with it when he entered the house. Rachel told this other inmate that after the rape, Marvin would continually stalk her and sit outside the hardy dam corner store waiting for her. This inmate was also aware of multiple threatening letters that Rachel received in jail from Marvin's family members. Because of these threats, Rachel had already approached corrections officers in the jail about Marvin Gabrion's status in the county system. She was telling multiple people, even before she got out, that she was afraid he would kill her, and apparently that was based upon that literally being written in a letter as a threat to her. Later, among Rachel's belongings, multiple letters from Marvin Gabrion's mother, Elaine Gabrion, were found. Apparently, the letters mentioned Rachel's daughter, Shannon, frequently, in a way that appeared to imply a threat. In these letters, Elaine Gabrion gave detailed instructions about how Rachel should write a letter to the prosecutor to drop the charges against her son, Marvin. Elaine said, quote, Sometimes my boys do bad things, the implication being that if Rachel didn't cooperate with her wishes, these bad things might somehow befall her. It's interesting that Rachel would eventually be forced by Marvin to do just that, write letters against her will, one of which went to the prosecutor, just as his mother had requested. So it appears as though multiple people in the Gabrion family had a vested interest in keeping Rachel quiet, and certainly not anywhere near a courtroom where she would possibly take the stand and reveal the full extent of their relationships. The other thing this suggests is that law enforcement officials were well aware of Rachel having been threatened by Gabrion before she was even released from jail, after the rape. She had told corrections officials, and she was receiving threatening letters, which I assume had been monitored since she was receiving them while in jail. I feel as though they all let this one slip through their fingers. Too many people knew this was a powder keg waiting to explode, because law enforcement was aware of the criminal history of Marvin Gabrion and his family. They were known to be selling drugs in the area, and had been for a long time. One of them was even in jail at the time on drug charges. I'm just, I'm just going to say it. I think more than a few people failed Rachel Timmerman. I also think that there's probably more about Marvin's family's involvement in the death of Rachel Timmerman and the other missing men than we know and certainly more than the police could prove. Marvin Gabriel also had a cellmate that got chatty with the feds. Gabriel told him all about this company called Loop Mantics Incorporated, where he had purchased books on survivalism, how to obtain false identities, and how to conceal dead bodies. Hi, I'm Mike Hoy, president of Loop Mantics Unlimited, a small press publisher and bookseller. We specialize in... Uh, such things as uh, cheap living techniques, uh, tax evasion, uh, hard-to-find information on drugs. One of our bestsellers is uh, 
Rancho Costanada, the dirt cheap desert homestead, which tells how to go out in the desert and live for practically nothing by a guy who actually lives that way. I've been doing this for approximately 30 years, and the good Lord willing, I'll be doing it for another 30. Gabriel told his cellmate that Rachel's grandmother had sold her baby because she needed the money. He said Gabriel kept a photograph of baby Shannon in his cell, and he once walked by and witnessed him doing something perverse while looking at the picture. Whenever Gabriel talked about the baby, his references to her were always in the past tense. While discussing the murder of an 18-year-old girl in Pawpaw, Michigan, whose boyfriend had murdered her and burned her vehicle, Gabriel told his cellmate that that's how he got rid of evidence. He said that he had a big barrel in the back of his truck that he used to burn evidence. Gabriel claimed to have lived and worked in numerous states, including Oklahoma, Seattle, Wisconsin, New York, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Arkansas, and he fancied himself God's gift to women. Said he liked younger girls. In a letter to one of his brothers dated October 25, 1996, from South Bend, Indiana, Marvin seems to confirm both that he was working out of state and his penchant for the ladies. During this time, by the way, he was running from law enforcement after being charged with Rachel's rape, which also seems to confirm that his family knew where he was while police were looking for him. Just got a job, 12 hours a week, but it'll help. I have a new address. Could you give it to mom when you see her? I got Yogi from Sherry. That helps. I missed him much more than her. She wants to date because we never did. Women can be so weird. Lots of rust-free, cheap pickups down here. Mainly farmers buy new ones, no salt for snow. Cars go for a fair price. Looked at a four-bedroom house yesterday for $12,000 in South Bend. Mishawaka is much nicer. Giant dealer swap meet here somewhere. John of John's Produce gets his stuff here. 70 degrees, 10 to 15 mile an hour winds, gorgeous blue sky. Some of these red-headed Irish co-eds can sure get me going. Too bad I'm not 20 years younger. They're fun to talk to anyway. Some of them are surprisingly mature. Don't forget to give Mom my address. This is my last envelope and she wanted to send me last year's birthday card. No waste, no want. Godspeed. Yogi was his dog, by the way. What strikes me so much about that letter is how lucid and intelligent he sounds when compared to his rants at trial and the letters sent from jail. It seems to support the fact that he was absolutely in control of his faculties. The man was simply manipulative. While Gabriel claimed that he had nothing to do with the other missing men, Wayne Davis, John Weeks, and Robert Allen, his cellmate did recall him saying that he had tried to get Davis's birth certificate to use. One name Gabriel never mentioned to the cellmate was John Weeks, though he did claim to have killed a couple people. One he strangled, another he drowned. He indicated that the drowning had occurred close to the time he'd been arrested. Another thing the FBI report with his cellmate indicated was that Gabriel had shaved his entire body, head, arms, pubic hair, everything, when he learned that they might be coming to obtain hair samples. The result did nothing to make him appear less like a psychotic murderer. It was visually stunning. The report also appeared to suggest a breakdown between Marvin and his brother and his mother, who were supposed to be selling his vehicles and sending him the money. Marvin alleged that they had not. 
If you search his name today on the internet, you'll likely come across a creepy webpage where he rants about his lawyers, the judge, his brother, how the police framed him, and even requests letters from the ladies with a plea that reads, I need full, complete, lengthy letters, with or without photos. Help me relive the terrible emotional pain of my wrongful incarceration. Please allow me to live vicariously through your life's experiences, living, console, hopes, dreams, fantasies, and passions, whatever. Be yourself, no rules. Blue-eyed, 180 pounds, 6 feet tall, athletic, Libra, love for all, obviously humorous. Europeans, Canadians, Americans, all welcome. Limited Spanish, French, and fluent in English. We'll try any language. In preparation for the penalty phase of the trial of Marvin Gabrian for the murder of Rachel Timmerman, his defense team compiled a great deal of family history. What they ended up presenting was a fairly shocking social history, 152 pages that covered his life growing up in the Gabrian family, as well as the mental health history of his entire clan. While I'm not going into his siblings, nieces and nephews and other family members, most of their mental health histories were summarized and one thing became glaringly clear right off the bat. This family had some pretty severe issues, above and beyond the fact that a majority of them had suffered from some type of diagnosed mental illness that ran the spectrum from general depression all the way up to suicide and or psychotic schizophrenic episodes. If there was ever a document that could put to rest any idea that mental health has nothing to do with DNA, this would be that document. Their research stretched all the way through grandchildren of cousins twice removed, and the stain of mental health, substance abuse, and aberrant behaviors did not wane as the branches of the family tree continued to sprout. I was actually kind of sad after reading it. Not so much for Marvin, because I don't for a minute think his crimes had anything to do with his mental health. But for an entire lineage of human beings that, from their first breaths, were met with severe disadvantage. Some of these people suffered greatly, and battled demons that most of us couldn't possibly imagine. I am going to outline a bit about his parents. I think how Marvin was raised is significant enough that it shaped who he and his siblings became. This report describes his life as being plagued by poverty, neglect, and trauma. There's also a lot of shame. As if to show with two images the exact point that Marvin Gabriel changed, the document begins with his 1971 high school graduation picture. The young man smiling back from the grainy black-and-white yearbook photo looks like he could have been best friends with Beaver Cleaver's older brother. His wavy hair is neatly combed and parted, and his necktie is properly knotted. Only the tiniest of things in that image suggests that something behind it might be slightly off. The corner of one lapel bent slightly up, as if to imply that were you two pan down to a full shot of him, the jacket might be rumpled, and the shirt beneath it would bear a few stains. Now cut to the second image, directly next to it, of a lean, wild-haired young man, shirtless in cut-off shorts, so uneven at the hem, the jaggedness reminds me of the attire of the Flintstones. The shorts look orange in the image, although the whole thing has an orange hue, so they might be closer to brown. 
the man with the long curly hair, almost a version of an afro, except for the already receding hairline, holds a styrofoam cup in one hand and a cigarette in the other, and he stands next to a car outside. His expression seems dire, confused, irritated. It's hard to tell, really, other than he doesn't seem amused. He's barefooted and he looks generally bedraggled, in stark comparison to the well-put-together yearbook photo. The report says that his behavior deteriorated soon after he graduated high school in 1971. Marvin was the fifth of six children born to Elaine and Marvin Gabriel Sr. He did acknowledge in one of his letters from jail many years later that he had been raped at age nine and a half, although he says this in a letter addressed to my wonderful daughter, Michelle Obama. In these later letters, he does sound deranged, although I'm not sure if the problem is that he wasn't being properly medicated while incarcerated or he was playing it up during his appeals process. In this particular letter, he says, quote, I deserve a full pardon regardless. If you want no contact with me and little publicity, Governor Granholm or Joseph Biden could handle it. I have enough proof of my innocence to push off media wolves. Michelle, you are severely, cruelly punishing me because, one, I was raped at age nine and a half, two, I'm white, and three, I'm politically incorrect. He signs off the letter by telling Michelle Obama that he loves her because she's his daughter and he needs to see her. In a final P.S. at the bottom of the page, he implores her to read the Constitution because any infringement on government or press pardon power is unconstitutional. The social history document goes into the molestation incident in more detail, suggesting that it was a neighbor that had lured Marvin and another child to his house using a ruse involving them helping him to rake some leaves. It does suggest that there was molestation involved, according to the family friend who had relayed the information. But how Marvin's mother handled the event is almost as disturbing as the event itself, apparently telling him that it was nothing and he shouldn't talk about it or even think about it. According to the report, she never even told their father that it happened. Marvin's mother Elaine is a compelling part of this story and it's obvious that she had some pretty serious issues of her own. The report notes that, quote, the children learned that sex was a force that could disrupt lives, manipulate other people, and was often shameful and illicit. The children learned that they could not rely on their mother and that she might disappear without notice for unpredictable periods. Marvin's mother left her home and her children many times to be with men with whom she was having affairs. Marvin Sr. described how Elaine cheated frequently and left home for long periods of time. When she would return, he would take her back. Once, Elaine lived with her paramour for several years. During one of her long-term affairs, she left for a month and took only one of Marvin's siblings with her, abandoning the rest. According to the report, Marvin Sr. only believed two of the children were his biological children, believing the rest to have been fathered by other men. Marvin's parents, according to the report, would have physical fights after sex, violent bouts, usually when they were drunk, and either deliberately exposed their children to their violent sexual habits or were indifferent to it. The children were exposed to wide-ranging and often seemingly incongruent emotions, 
Despite having many affairs, Marvin's mother was said to have been very jealous. One story revolved around Marvin's father chatting with a pregnant woman at a wedding in 1960, and Elaine Gabrion became so upset, thinking there was something going on between them, that she punched the pregnant woman in the stomach. It seems from the many stories in the social history that Elaine did not maintain appropriate sexual boundaries with her children and their partners. Because of this, it appears that some of the children developed inappropriate sexual conduct as adults, including being physically and sexually abusive. And when you add addiction and drugs to the mix, you've got a hot mess of dangerous dysfunction. There seems to have been a fair amount of physical abuse between the father and the children as well, and also the boys with each other. They were obviously repeating the behavior of their parents, doing exactly what they had seen in their home over all those years. Getting your head beat against the wall seemed to be a regular occurrence in the Gabrian household, according to the report. Alcohol and drug use were prevalent in the Gabrian house. Elaine was even once arrested for smuggling pot into jail for another son in 1980. Even as she got older, she allegedly took over-the-counter stimulants. Multiple family members said she was an addict, and that the use and sale of drugs was a family affair. There was a fairly strong culture of criminality in the household, according to the report, as well as the numerous police reports and criminal records I've had the opportunity to review. Marvin Sr. stole a car when he was a juvenile and was sent to a boy's home. As an adult, he and a friend would steal televisions from homes and then sell them in Grand Rapids. When his friend was caught and arrested, Marvin Sr. gave money to his wife to help with her kids so that the friend wouldn't snitch on him. This is something that apparently his son Marvin had done with John Weeks before he ended up killing him. When Marvin was in jail, in order to try and get money for his son's defense, Marvin Sr. contacted an associate and asked him to put siding on only two sides of a tar paper house so he could take a picture and make it look more valuable than it was so he could get a mortgage based on a value for the home that far exceeded what it was worth. Marvin's mother was also well known for stealing things, and if her boys wanted something, she would do whatever she needed to do, even if it wasn't legal, to get them what they wanted. She was known to take her grandchildren into the store and have them steal things too. In 2000, she was banned from visiting one of her sons in jail because she was caught trying to sneak cash to him. These behaviors filtered down to her children, and some of them would be later arrested for the same behaviors. Surprisingly, as children, Marvin had the best reputation of the brothers, but something happened around the time he graduated high school. According to the report, Marvin was involved in an astonishing number of motor vehicle accidents and had obtained numerous head injuries beginning around the time of his high school graduation. In fact, on graduation night in 1971, he was involved in a serious accident where he was injured while driving drunk. In the mid-70s, a girlfriend at the time reported that they had gotten into an accident where both of their heads hit the windshield and it broke. There was another car accident in 1974, and he also raced motorbikes in Arizona and got banged up a lot there. The same girlfriend, after they moved to Seattle, was involved in another vehicular accident with Gabrian. This time they were on a motorcycle and hit a car. Neither of them were wearing helmets, and he is said to have had a huge lump on his head after the accident. Marvin flew headfirst over the hood of the car and rammed into the door of a truck. 
There was yet another accident in 1976. This time the other vehicle operator's fault, but Marvin was plowed into on the driver's side as he pulled into a gas station. In August of 1983, Marvin was evaluated at Gerber Memorial Hospital after being found with a strong odor of alcohol on his breath, staggering and slurring his words, trying to tow a damaged vehicle from an accident scene. And this wouldn't be the first time he would be found trying to move a vehicle from a crash scene that he'd created. That happened again in 1985. Marvin did a lot of drunk driving. There are two more vehicle accidents described, one where he smashed into a chain-link fence after spinning donuts in his car and went through the windshield headfirst. Another where he ran his motorcycle into a telephone pole. In March of 1992, he got into another car accident in Cedar Springs and was taken to Butterworth Hospital in Grand Rapids. There, he experienced coordination and memory problems, slurred speech, pain in his neck, and tingling in his elbow and fingers. Five months later, in August, he was still having periods of memory loss and was then referred for an evaluation for post-traumatic head syndrome. The doctor also noted some depression, and Marvin was even sent for an Alzheimer's screening psychiatric evaluation. At that time, he told the doctors, quote, My head feels, my head like, feels it's like it's underwater, underwater water, foggy, foggy, fuzzy. fuzzy. Everything, Everything is kind, is of, kind difficult of difficult and out of focus. Out of focus. At this time, in the report, he is noted as having problems with daily tasks. Quote, he does not currently drive, and he goes to his mother's for many meals rather than cooking. His brother does the house cleaning, laundry, shopping, household repairs, maintenance, and yard work rather than Marvin. His brother noted that Marvin almost burned the house down because he left the stove on. Marvin could not manage money well. He admitted that he could not think as quickly as before. Now remember, all of this is reportedly occurring in the years before Rachel Timmerman was found in July of 1997. Further down the report, he's still complaining of dizziness, headaches, fainting spells, poor concentration, nightmares, impatience, irritability, and he described a feeling as if his frontal lobes were underwater. He said, It feels like there's, feels a, like worm there's a worm crawling. crawling. crawling on my right on my temple. Right temple. There were also indications of seizure activity, so Marvin was put on a medication that's often prescribed for bipolar disorder. Years later, in prison, he would also be described an anti-seizure medication. In 1993, he had a neuropsychological evaluation that made these conclusions. He had severe challenges regarding attention, stream of awareness, concentration, and investment in sustained ideational activity, which comprises basic functional abilities. They noted memory impairments associated with attention-related problems and said that his problem-solving challenges were in the moderate to severely impaired range because he was unable to sustain continued cognitive effort. This report noted that he was highly distractible through testing and unable to complete them in a reasonable frame of time. He was noted to be verbally excessive and hard to redirect. Retrieval from memory was reduced and he was verbally verbose. Pragmatic problems were severe with a tangential style and social awkwardness which call into question his capacity to function within a treatment milieu. Marvin's span of effort for purposeful activity related to self-care seems less than 30 seconds. 
His initiation is strong, but it results in a chaotic, multifaceted approach to problem-solving, resulting in significant confusion for more complex tasks requiring planning and social judgment. They also noted that he was not consistent with medication management and would have required supervision for a medication routine. His ability to budget was poor, he had poor functional math skills, and significant confusion as well as impulsivity. To me, the above describes him well, as we know him around the time of Rachel's murder and thereafter. His verbal style is definitely verbose, and his scrawled letters are the same. Social awkwardness tracks with how many folks described him as strange and a bit of a mess. And the chaotic, multifaceted approach to problem-solving fits really well with how intricately he planned those murders and everything around them, including changing his identity multiple times, going so far as having Rachel write letters before she died, and later mailing them in another state where he then sold a stolen car. To me, his problem-solving approach is manic and all over the place. At this point in the evaluation, his doctor recommended medications, but it required that he find a stable place to live, so he was discharged to his brother, and I am sure you can guess how well that went. No one would hold out much hope that this would work out. Upon discharge, he was given numbers for multiple support resources, including a referral to Nuevo County Mental Health, and also numbers for various homeless shelters, should he refuse the recommendation. After that, he was homeless quite a bit, including living on a roof and in a shed in Grand Rapids. Even at some of the missions and shelters, he was made to leave due to aggressive behavior. He didn't take his medication properly, and he lost his Medicaid because he improperly submitted forms. It doesn't appear that Marvin was interacting with people well at this point. One family member said, almost without fail, his interactions would escalate and he would upset those around him. Later that year, he was admitted to St. Mary's in Grand Rapids with a head injury after a carjacking incident where he was assaulted with an unknown object. Within the next couple years, he would cross paths with Robert Allen, the man whose identity he stole and has never been found. The reason I covered Marvin's mental health is not because I believe it had any bearing on him being found guilty of murder. I think he plotted and planned in a way that leaves no doubt that he was fully aware of what he was doing, and he knew it was wrong, and none of that can be blamed on his mental illness. But I don't think there is any question that Marvin Gabriel was shaped by everything he experienced. It does seem clear that he could have had some of these same types of brain injuries that we see in football players. Look at what happened to Aaron Hernandez. There are some glaring similarities in their stories. Now that I've gotten you up to speed on where Marvin Gabriel was mentally at the time, in the next episode, I'll go over what I know about Robert Allen and Wayne Davis. Both men would have suffered at Marvin's hand after the events I outlined here. This person that I've described is the person who ended both of their lives, as well as Rachel, her baby, and John Weeks. They all had a final encounter with a man who could barely move around socially without causing a problem. Yet this same man was able to, albeit in a very manic way, execute all their murders so efficiently that most of them have never been found. 
Stay tuned. The dust and the wind carry weight of the sins of your father and his kin since the world did begin. The E's and the V's had them begging on their knees. It bended all the trees and flashed trees, all reprise, no. Thank mm-hmm. you.